The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. How you doing? Good. How are you? Yeah. You know, doing, uh, doing pretty well. I hear that this is our last episode for we're going to be off for two weeks. Is that true? Yes, we're taking a, we're taking a little vacation. It'll be the first time in a long time for a break, but uh, we're going to have two weeks off. Can you believe it? I can't. I think that's crazy. We didn't even have two weeks off when I had COVID. That's true. We, we pushed right through. Did you want to go back in time and take that time off? Take my COVID time off? Yeah, exactly. COVID time off isn't really time off. It's just <laughs> miserable times as sick as I've ever been in my entire life. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I thought that it was a good distraction for you from, you know, just be, being being miserable, isolated and all that. It was jazz. like it was like taking a vacation without all the fun and then add a fear of constant death hanging over me like a sort of Damocles. Without all the Orlando. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Orlando, I'm fr- I say as a, a native Orlando and yes. uh, always the fear of death. So who is on the show today? Uh, We have the director of the new movie Tetris, John Baird. And uh, Tetris comes out while we're on hiatus. So really in about a week's time, March 31st, it's available on Apple TV+. Definitely check it out. It's great. It's really good. It had a wonderful premiere at South By. And uh, yeah, it's got uh, Taron Edgerton in it. And Mm, I like him. Yeah, me too. And in fact, uh, I would say perhaps even more than Rocket Man, I think this is the best role I've ever seen him in. I, I really liked it. Oh, really? I thought, Interesting. I thought, he, I thought he was great. And the movie is a little unexpected. And the fact that it's uh, based on a true story is incredible. And we and John and I talk about that in, in the interview. And I will say that it doesn't sort of like let up on the gas for like the first bit of the movie. And you're kind of like, what am I watching? What is this thing? And then, you know, it all makes sense and it all kind of comes together beautifully. And mm. uh, all I'll say is it involves the KGB. And Whoa. well, yeah, and it's a it's an international production, although I think for the most part, it was all shot in Scotland. So we, we talk about that, too. And it's a lot of fun. I definitely think it's worth hearing the interview, going and watching the movie or watching the movie and then uh, hearing the interview. I think it'll just add an extra layer to the whole thing. I'd seen a trailer for that movie and I thought it looked really interesting. So I will definitely be checking it out. All right. So, Ben, it's our close focus time of the show. What is the uh, topic du jour? What is uh, going on in the industry? Well, something really caught my eye and it was an article in The Hollywood Reporter by Katie Kilkenny. And it's about reality TV workers launch Union Drive at The Kitchen and Trisha's Southern Kitchen producer. Mm. And we can put a link to the article in the show notes and many things at work here. One is, according to this article, the people making this show suddenly had their uh, like lost benefits or had their benefits drastically reduced. And there wasn't transparency with pay. Pay was cut. And it's like pushing people, as unfair labor practices often do, to unionize. And mm-hmm. Wait I support a second. Them. It's a reality show? I've never heard about a reality producer ever doing this to their team before. Well, no, I mean, I'm... that's the thing. So, like, <laughs> sorry. Rea- sorry. Like, yeah, for, for those of you who aren't jaded and old like me, reality producers are, are pretty famous for uh, getting screwed by their employers on occasion. Yeah. And the thing is that reality sort of had its 
biggest it, it had a couple of big pushes in, in in its inception i mean like to unionize could, yeah before even we talk about unionizing reality comes to the fore in the early aughts i mean you could argue that any documentary kind of TV show was reality, but the branding of reality TV comes along with shows like Survivor and Big Brother and stuff like that. But then it sort of became kind of a catch-all for a lot of lifestyle-type programming. And it was a direct response to the SAG strike that was going on right around that time. That's true. Because this stuff was union-proof. Mm. It's true. And you could get a bunch of people who weren't in a union and you could have them work while the uh, the contract negotiations were underway. And that's what the studios did. They and went. in fact, I know this as a DGA director. I haven't personally done this, um, but I know that there are a lot of DGA directors who work in reality directing. They just don't call it directing. They call it like show producing or segment producing or something like that. They give them a producer sounding credit. But it's directing. They're showing up and talking to the talent and telling the camera guy where to put the camera. And it's directing. They just don't ever call it directing. They call it a kind of producing. And the reality world has gotten away with that. And I think that the real question has always been, how could you call it writing if it's kind of quasi-documentary? So we're not writing what really happened. But in fact... <laughs> It a is. lot of these shows yeah, are heavily of, scripted. Yeah, very, very much so. I, I can tell you because I, I used to shoot some reality way back when. And for the same company, one show was about 90% documentary, 90% real, very little scripted. Occasionally we'd be like, okay, well, we missed that shot. Can you guys walk yeah. into this restaurant again? But then the other show for the exact same people, the exact same company was like 90% scripted. So it was exactly the opposite. And it was really about maybe it wasn't scripted word for word. But the producers all had beats and the producers had yeah. to work with the talent more like actors than like real people to get them to shape the story that they wanted to tell, which was. Well, and you'll, you'll hear stories about uh, like especially shows that are pretending to be documentary shows mm. where it's like following a celebrity like Gene Simmons or something around. And I'm not saying I know from personal experience because I didn't work on it, but I heard through the grapevine everything that ever happened in that show was completely scripted. On the flip side, that you got shows like Deadliest Catch, and a friend of mine used to work on Deadliest Catch, and he's like, none of it was scripted, and moreover, there was basically room for one person to run camera and sound on that boat, and it was all dangerous and hellish, and it was all kind of put together in post. But still, so the question becomes, is the editor, and my wife directly behind me, uh, writes a pretty well-known reality show, but she writes it in the edit bay. She uses Avid. On, it's always funny because we've got Avid on one side of the room and Premiere on the other with me. So is she writing? Well, you, yes, she, she's absolutely writing. But is she writing a script that is then brought out and actors say those lines? No, that's not what it is. So it kind of falls into this oddball gray area. And I think a lot of reality shows do that because they don't have a they don't have a paper script. They don't have sides. They have a producer who has to go out and get a bullet list of story beats or of interview moments that, you know, where they're ginning up conflict between two people or whatever it is they're doing. And so what union does it fall into, I think, is the biggest question. Well, there has been pushes like this in the past, and the Writers Guild seems to have adopted these reality producers into their fold uh, specifically for this because they uh, they feel like they are crafting the story that they are the the yeah. arbiters of the story and as such they are a writer so you yeah. know I and don't I, I, and I agree no pushback on my part 
So, but it's interesting though the not, timing. Not that they asked me. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting the timing though right now of this too uh, to come up because uh, pretty much no matter who you talk to in the industry, they they all kind of feel like we are on the eve of a writer's strike. So yeah, it is, it's, what I keep hearing about the Writers Guild strike is it's gonna no matter what it's starting in May. We're gonna the the Writers Guild is is the first guild to negotiate with the AMPTP companies, and the stakes couldn't be higher because they're pushing for residuals on streaming which the last time these negotiations happened, I believe was 2007 and streaming was not nearly what it is now. Like streaming is everything now. It's true. And uh, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens because we've talked about this on the show before and it's anybody's guess right now, but neither side is showing any initial weakness or planning on backing down quickly. It sounds like so it's we might be at this for a while. Here's what I've heard. Uh, from people who are uh, way above my pay grade in this business who've been around a lot longer. The strike is 100% going to happen. It's going to start in May. It's going to end in September. So uh, we're going to have a miserable summer (laughs) here in LA. I hope that's not true. But what I've been told also is that it enables, and I remember hearing about this in 2007, it enables studios and production companies who have overall deals or whatever kind of deals with writers or executive producers that they'd like to clean house of who aren't producing for them it enables them to just get a clean slate what i'm not seeing now and maybe just this is my perspective so maybe i'm just not seeing it or hearing about it is i remember in 2007 there was this rush to get a bunch of stuff into production so that the the studios and the networks could weather the strike and i'm not seeing that exactly i'm not seeing that are you are you Uh, hearing about saturday i had lunch with a uh, former development executive and i was told that a lot of the studios and streamers collectively have a lot of projects already in development, already uh. greenlit, already going. So the reason you haven't seen the rush is that it's already there. It's already happened and that they stocked up during the pandemic to such a degree mm. that they don't need to do that right now. And also, I've heard that money has already been spent and there isn't a rush to spend more money right now and that there isn't uh, a lot of extra money to green light stuff. So they've already got stuff in the can. They've already got stuff in production. They've already got stuff that's greenlit. And that's why we're not seeing the, the rush right now like we had last time. All right. So putting all this together, what's the over under on reality shows unionizing right before a strike is about to happen? What are the chances? I'd say pretty slim because the reality shows in the past have not necessarily, unless it was for one of the, the larger, more major companies. And there's a lot of smaller reality companies out there. I think a lot of them feel pretty lucky to have jobs and to be working mm-hmm. and don't want to see that uh, falter at a time when they could receive larger uh, orders or they could receive more shows uh, going forward because generally reality shows, especially of a certain budget, are easier to produce, less expensive. And depending on what it is, it can fit into a lot of different places out there. There, So I, I don't see the smaller companies rocking the boat Bigger companies, better organized companies, companies that are producing network level shows that are not currently unionized, and there are some that that are, uh, I think we might see some of those. So I'd say a little column A, a little column B. So uh, I'm not sure. But but flip it around too and think about it from like, let's say you're a reality producer, i.e. a writer. Yeah. So you're writing a reality show right now. Would you join a union knowing that that meant that there was... A 100% chance that you were going to be out of work for some period of time, possibly the whole summer. I'd say unlikely. I'd say in the the reality space, highly unlikely. 
I say this as a DGA member. I wouldn't join the DGA while I was already working if that meant that I was going to go on strike immediately afterwards. No, it's it's pretty much much saying that you're going to be unemployed. So. Yeah. On the heels of that, I would like to point out the DGA has never gone on strike ever, 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 never in its history. This might be the first time, but the DGA is the coolest heads, I think, amongst all of the unions and guilds when it comes to negotiation. Seems like it for sure. Or maybe, maybe they just play ball. I don't know. <laughs> uh, let's get to the interview with John Baird from Tetris. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So, John, Tetris is so much fun. What an incredible movie. Let's jump back in time a little bit. First of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How did this project come to be? I was working with uh, the producer, Matthew Vaughan, on a different project. I've been working with him for about six months. Then this script just arrived out of the blue. And we had been working with Taran anyway on this other project. When I read the script, I was really sort of just shocked at the the, the true nature of it um, in terms of did this actually really happen? I can't even believe that this, I had never heard this story before. You know, I had no idea that, that uh, this was for real. So so what really got me interested in it was thinking, uh, you know, the feeling I had after reading that script in terms of my sort of amazement that it, if I could recreate that, if I made a film, I could recreate art with people when they watch the movie. That's the kind of movie I would like to go and see. You know, I'd like to go and make and, and spend a few years of my life doing so. It was really, it was quite a quick turnaround, really. It was quite a quick move from one onto the other. But it very much ticked all my boxes, you know, true story, political sort of backdrop, had a bit of humor, had a lot of heart, it was quick paced, and the ability for some really strong central performances. So, yeah, it was, it was a lucky one, really. I was quite fortunate and I was thankful that they gave me the opportunity to do it. The movie is a lot of fun and it has a really quick pace. And I think that when you've got a story that is fun and quick like that, it's easy to get lost in the reality, the trueness that, that you bring up here. Like, you, you know, based on a true story, I'm sure there's some creative liberties that are taking place, but how true would you say this really is? How true to actual events would you say Tetris really is? Well, look, I mean, Alexei and Hank, they are executive producers on the film. They're obviously happy with the movie, that they they appreciate that there's artistic license being taken there as well. But I think the basic story of a guy putting his life at risk, or two guys putting their life at risk, really, to to bring this tale to the world while battling uh, the forces of Robert Maxwell and the Soviet state is very much the true story, you know? Um, I think the kind of the stuff that we embellished was like the car chase through Moscow. I think that was a metaphorical sort of depiction of what, how the Soviet state was trying to prevent them from doing this and how Maxwell had his, had his hand in that as well and he was trying to sort of leverage his relationships there. That's all very true. It's bizarre how much of it is really spot on, you know. Obviously, we had to Hollywood it up a bit in terms of the maybe violent scenes or, or action scenes, but the actual narrative itself is, I think we're quite there with it, you know. And I, I assumed as much as well, too. And there, you've got everything in this. You've got the KGB, you've got all this political intrigue, You've got the family relationship sort of drama that takes place, and the uh, production appears to span multiple continents. I have a feeling, though, that a lot of this was shot in the UK somewhere. How did you uh, make all, you know, Japan and Russia, how did you make all this happen? Well, great difficulty, I have to be honest, because we couldn't go there. We decided Scotland was our best bet, particularly because most of the film was set in Moscow. 
there was two particular cities in Scotland which gave us the best matches for most of the time. One being Aberdeen, which is my hometown, uh, and one being Glasgow, which is the biggest city. And they both give us very different styles of architecture. We used Edinburgh, which is the capital of Scotland, for a tiny bit of Kremlin interiors and stuff. But predominantly, it was Aberdeen for the brutalist, Stalinist, sort of hard concrete structures. And then Glasgow for this sort of neoclassical look, you know, because Moscow have, have both those looks. So it just so happened that I'm Scottish. I'm from it. I don't live there. I haven't lived there for probably over half my life now. But it just so happened that that in the whole of UK gave us by far the best match for Soviet Moscow, you know. And because Moscow at the time was a very great place, you know, Henk describes it as, as a town where or a city where when you go to it, you feel as though someone's turned the colour off, right? Feels so somebody's like desaturated the, the color, and that was a really that was something we always held on to when we spoke about you know the color palette and how everything was grey or brown and and old and falling to pieces. Scotland in general, the, well, the weather isn't brilliant, but Aberdeen they call it the granite city because a lot of the buildings are made of grey granite. And on, on a cloudy day, which it all often has, the light that that creates is very close to what you would imagine Soviet Moscow to look like. So. It all, it really lent itself to the tone of the film being there. And, but as I said, it just so happened to be in Scotland, my, my home country just provided that, you know? Well, it must be nice to go home again. <laughs> it must be nice to uh, work uh, close to a place that you're already uh, very familiar with. No, no, it is. And I was very proud to do it because Aberdeen in particular, in Glasgow, they have a lot of filming in Glasgow, but Aberdeen, they've never had a movie there, let alone a movie this size. So we're quite a novelty up there and people were coming out on their hundreds to watch us shoot each day. And, you know, you go to LA or New York and people just, okay, as a film crew and they walk past and maybe turn their head and see, okay. But we were, we had hundreds of people cr crowding around and really interested in what was going on and impeccably behaved as well, you know. So it was a proud moment for me to take that back and to show the people of North Scotland how you make a movie maybe and to show the crew how respectful these people up there are, you know. Yeah, for sure. Tell me a little bit about working with Matthew Vaughn. You know, he's definitely a producer who's really known for a particular type of uh, action film. And I, I have to imagine he's sort of a, a linchpin for putting this all together and bringing you in and, and how it happens. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that process of working with Matthew? Yeah, he's got the great ability to be able to finance movies, get quite a big budget level. So it's good because my history in filmmaking is more like the independent route where you struggle to get the films made, you know, through government funding and that. And this seemed to be, the funded process was expedited because of him and Len Blavatnik, who was the other main financer. But yeah, I mean, I think Matthew gets involved more. His philosophy sort of came through that he kind of leave you alone during the shooting mainly and then come in more during the post-production. And I think he sort of drove the more the the computer graphic element where I was concentrating more on the Cold War thriller aspect. So I think both our sensibilities have have merged the film into what it actually became, you know, which is a quite, I think it's quite a unique piece of work. And I'm excited to show people because it's not often that you can do a movie like this and it feel a little bit different, you know. So, so I'm hoping it, it translates, you know. I definitely think it does. And for me, it was just a, a wonderful roller coaster ride. And the, and the whole time I'm watching it, it's like, I can't believe this this really happened. I can't believe this is the story. And and really, it, it's just so much fun. I, I don't mean to gush about this. I mean, this, uh, this no, is... No, please do. <laughs> yeah, this is really wonderful. I've, right after I saw it, I immediately had to tell my wife that like, oh, holy crap, you know, as soon as this is out, you have to see this. Um, nice. Thanks. So tell me about working with Alwyn Kuchler, your cinematographer. 
had you guys uh, done some work before or is this uh, first time for you guys? We didn't. I had actually met him about another job. I met him in MoMA in New York years and years ago. And weirdly enough, we had both forgot about that meeting until we were halfway through the Zoom on for Tetris. And then we sort of went, we've met, we've met before, right? And it just all sort of, none of us sort of remembered, you know, we clicked, but yeah, we, Uncle Alvin, that's what we called him, Uncle Alvin, because he's just, he's the sweetest man. And like a lot of, you know, DPs and stuff, he lives in his own, you know, he's got his own world going on, but it's a beautiful world, you know, and he is lovely, self-deprecating guy. And the Germans sometimes get a hard time about this, the lack of humor they've got. But Alvin, I found to be someone with a great sense of levity and someone who could really laugh at himself and just endear people to his craziness of working uh, just by being a, predominantly an uber-talented individual and a really lovely human being, yeah? And he made that experience really enjoyable for me because he's so experienced and working at such a high level. He taught me a lot of stuff. He had a fantastic operator as well. But yeah, he's lightened, particularly the Russian stuff was some of the best I've ever experienced on a set. He's a very special cinematographer. Well, you bring up the uh, the Moscow portion of the movie. That's a really big part of the movie. And I know you talked about the desaturated color palette, but can you talk a little bit about how uh, you guys came up with the, this look? I know maybe it's, it might almost seem cliche to say like, oh, you know, desaturated. It's not desaturated. It, it, really, it's, it really emphasizes grays and browns and yeah. earth tones and, and that sort of thing. You know, what was the visualization uh, process like doing a COVID movie and coming up with, with a look for this? Yeah, well, it was such a big team effort. And then you throw the costume designer into the mix as well. And there was, it, it didn't feel like an ego thing because sometimes you have one, it only takes one of those departments, egos, to upset the Apple car. And, you know, so it's not rocket science, right? It's not, if you're trying to replicate Moscow, it's not rocket science because you've got archive footage that you can reference. You've got, people who were there at a the time, whether it's Hank himself, Alexei, whether it's Len Blavatnik, who's one of our financers. So it's not just a case of just the desaturate and the look. As I say, it's not rocket science to do it. It's rocket science to get everybody to do it at the same time. That's where the rocket science is. So you kind of, as a director, you're working, obviously, a lot of your job is with the actors and stuff, but you're also working as like a is a school teacher or a, or a psychologist or a motivator or, you know, you've got all these different sort of assets you have to try and bring to the table. And a lot of that is getting your team right and them for them to be working for the greater good. So that was the thing with Alvin, I thought. He was, he was definitely the most experienced out of everybody on that crew, but he never once used that as a weapon or a tool to go, yeah, it's my way because I've done this, that and the other, you know. Very, very humble about his, his past work, but everybody knew what he'd done, so everybody listened to him. He didn't have to say it, because we knew. Well, uh, John, let's talk a little bit about your journey. How did you start out in this crazy business? It sounds like you were a production assistant at one point. Yeah. You know, uh, take us down your path to getting the bug and deciding that directing was going to be the thing for you. So I, I grew up in a fishing town in the north of Scotland, just north of Aberdeen, the place I was talking about. And none of my family were particularly into film or they weren't educated or into art or music or anything. Uh, it was a very loving environment, but, but I didn't have any of that. But my dad used to love musical theatre. Yeah, he was a construction guy, but he loved musical theatre. He just had this thing about going to musicals. And we would go to musicals down in London when we visited my uncle down there. And, 
And this would be the secret thing that I used to do as a kid. I would never tell the, 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 the guys back home, yeah, because we're all like tough guys. Uh, but I used to love it. And it used to, the feeling I used to get when I came out of a musical was something that I, I, I sort of kept with me right through my early years. And it was like, I want to replicate that feeling, yeah, in my life. Yeah, that's what I want to do. I didn't know what a movie director was. I didn't know what a director was. I literally did. I thought I wanted to be an actor, right? Because that's the glamour part you think as a kid, right? So when I sort of started to get into movies and, and, and look at it, and then I was like, no, I think I'm more suited to this. And it was a slow, organic sort of process of, of getting into that. And then, so I went down to London and bombed around for two years. Couldn't really get a start. Didn't know anybody in industry. And then eventually this job came up as a PA in this, the smallest sort of production company. And I said, I'll take it, you know, and my first day on the job was to go to my boss's house and pick maggots off his kitchen floor and put them in a, oh, no. yeah, and put them in a paper cup and take them down to the environmental health to get them checked out. And I was so happy to do it because I was like, I know I'm on a, I'm on a path now, right? Show business. Yes. This is going <laughs> to, this is going to lead, this eventually will lead me somewhere. Now I'm on this train. You are not going to get me off this thing. Yeah. So I just learned on the job, eventually got a job at BBC and started sort of directing inserts for these topical comedy shows and lied my ass off really to, to, to get me the next job and said I could do things when I didn't, you know, couldn't do them. And eventually you, you get to a place where you learn on a job and you get there and you get your chance, you know. And that was a short film that I did and self-financed. And, and so I never looked back from there really, but it was, it was a really hard journey because I didn't have the contacts to get me in but I just made sure that once I'm in that door I'm just like there's no way you're getting me out of this you know and it was reading books like there's a great book that I, I still keep very close to me it's called On Filmmaking by Alexander McKendrick and it's such a great simple you know you know it right and I'm not a big fan of these self-taught books but that's one I always keep near me and it's one that I used from early on in my career to help me make these decisions you know so very grateful but it's taken a lot of hard work to get here what do you think uh, a long way? Because, I mean, look, th this isn't your first directing gig. You didn't go from being a production assistant to, you know, directing uh, this this movie for Matthew Vaughn and Apple, with, you yeah. know, big, big stars and, you know, incredible cast. And what was your break along the way? What Was there a point, you know, at, you're, you're working as a PA, you're picking maggots off the floor. Yeah. Uh, there, there has to be a, a series of events of things that catapult you to the place that you're at now. Uh, is there one in particular that you go... Yeah, you know, it, it's a really good thing I was at this place on a Tuesday. Otherwise, where might my life have gone? Yeah, so what I think it was, was I was doing this short film and it was called It's a Casual Life. And it was about the football soccer hooligans, yeah? And just at the time, there was about to be a movie shot in London called Green Street, yeah? Green Street, oh, yeah. starring Elijah Wood, Charlie Hunnam, right? Well, I was shooting this short film. They were about to do this. And the director heard that we were about to do this short film, this big fight scene. And she said, it was a female director, Lexi Alexander. She said, can we come down and watch you how you do your, your fight scene? I said, yeah, come down. So we did it. And then on a job, she was like, I need you to be my assistant on this movie. Yeah. I'd never worked mm. in a feature film before. Never, ever worked in a feature film. And I was just like, sign me up. I don't care how much I get paid. Sign me up. This will be like film school for me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I was with Lexi through the whole thing. Saw everything, the great things, the stuff that we got right, the stuff, things that we didn't get right, but learned really through just sticking close with her, how a movie is put together. And I met someone on that film who was, you know, came from a wealthy family and they were willing to take a chance on me for my first feature film. Yeah. So that was the day that it all changed for me 
and I'd never look back after that. It was like the short film, onto that, to meeting somebody there, onto my first feature film, Cass, then which led on to Filth and then something. So, so, but that was the day it changed was, was when Lexi hired me as her assistant. That's a great story. Um, okay, so you've worked in television too. You, you yeah. kind of go back and forth between television and films. Do you prefer the, the feature world? Do you prefer the episodic world? What Do you have a, do you have a preference for the type I, of work you I, like I to do? I definitely prefer the film world, yeah. I mean, the difference in respect you get as a director from movies and TV is still a big difference, yeah. Because in TV, yeah. you, you, you have the writer on set and you don't feel as though you're driving it, you know, so much in TV. Unless you're uber director, do you know what I mean? Unless you're massive and, and that. In film, you still very much feel as though you're, you're part, you, you're the person in charge, which is a control freak I like to be, you know. For the aspiring director out there, and there's, there's quite a few of them, do you have any advice on how to get that break, how to keep going, how to, you know, make it happen? What, what would you tell someone who's, who's trying to get into this today? I would say be in it for the right reason for a start, yeah. Don't be in it for the glory because there's a lot less of that it, it, than there is hard work. Um, never be intimidated by someone because of what they're telling you, but be respectful of someone from what they show you because, I mean, that's just basically an action speaks louder than words things. But the main thing for me is be in it for the right reason. And if you can tell a story to your friends or your family, you can be a director. If you can't do that, be something else. I think that's a great place to leave it. John, thanks so much for being on the show. I don't know if you do any social media, but if someone wants to follow you out there somewhere, do you do any of the, the socials? Are you I, on I do. On the only one I really do is Twitter. I just recently signed up for Instagram and I'm going to try and get more into that. And I know as a director, I really should be doing that. But Twitter just seemed to work for me. And my handle is at John S. Baird. But I love it, yeah. And and my, my language sometimes can be a bit tasty. And I'm quite political as well, but I do like the funnier things. So it's a very mixed up timeline, I hope, right? But yeah, that's the thing I, I concentrate mainly on is Twitter, yeah. We're going to put your Twitter on our, our official website so people can go to our website, camnoir.com, and they can find you. It was so much fun. I, I really hope to have you back on the show in the future, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Great. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your support. All right, so that was John Baird, the director of Tetris. And uh, just once again, it's going to be on Apple TV Plus starting on March 31st, 2023. Check it out. I really thought it was fun, and uh, I think you will too. I look forward to it. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it is our short end time of the show. What is your obsession this week? Or or what are you into? What uh, What are you all about? Well, I think I maybe talk about YouTube channels that I follow a little too often, but there's this YouTube channel. I fell into this weird hole of magicians <laughs> and and mentalists. And then this one guy named Spidey, I don't know really anything about him, except he has a channel where he shows you magic tricks and how to do them. But he's also he also talks about how he's like trained in behavior analysis and body language and all this stuff. And he has a channel called The Behavioral Arts. And he's been chasing topical stuff. And a year ago, he did a kind of an in-depth thing about the Oscar slap. And then just, you know, whatever, two weeks ago, Chris Rock released his Netflix special in which he goes into great detail. The first time he's ever publicly spoken about the slap incident. Mm -hmm. And I highly recommend the Chris Rock special, not just because we're both named Rock, but because uh, he's, he's your cousin, uh, isn't he? I I, uh, I don't believe so. Oh, uh, okay. Maybe maybe very distantly. 
But uh, I think he's possibly the best comedian working today, and I thought that special was amazing. But then on top of that, the stuff he goes into about the Will Smith slap was pretty hard-hitting stuff. Mm. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> or, or all pun intended. Or pun intended. <laughs> uh, unintentional pun intended after the fact. Uh, I'm um, on the Behavioral Arts uh, YouTube channel right now. I just pulled it up. And uh, 846,000 subscribers, 90 videos. Uh, this this guy did not just fall off the turnip truck. That it sounds. No, no, he's really he's good at what he does, but he does a really in depth analysis of Chris Rock's body language, vocal inflection, facial expressions, and he kind of does actually a two part. He did one last week that was kind of in depth, and then this week he brought on two guests to help him kind of analyze a lot of it, and. I mean, I feel like, what does this have to do with cinematography? Not a fucking thing. But, uh, <laughs> but I do think that as filmmakers, cinematographers, directors, whoever's listening to this, people who, who want to do this, like, be a student of human behavior. And oh, agree. And, and in uh, fact, I'll go for a step further and just say, if you're working on set, you ought to be able to read the room really well. You, well, ought, you, got, you got to know what the hell's going on and when to, you know, keep your mouth well, shut and when to just, you know... Yeah. yeah, nose to the grindstone. <laughs> yeah, uh, watch Glenn Gary Glenn Ross a lot. Um, <laughs> but uh, I love the way this uh, guy Spidey—I don't know what his real name is—he just goes yeah, by, so Spidey. by Spidey. He, yeah. I mean, that's like his professional name too. He's a mentalist and stuff. He does you know shows on Netflix and stuff. The way and the detail in which he breaks down kind of micro expressions, facial expressions, little things that maybe you think about, maybe you don't. And uh, I just find the guy super interesting. And then realizing that sort of this guy's background, you know, is almost the same kind of background you would have if you were going to join the CIA. You know, Mm -hmm. like this guy's an expert at reading micro expressions and body language and and this stuff and the detail in which he goes into it. Anyway, I don't have much deeper than that to say, but I, I watched it. I got a lot out of it. I thought it was very interesting and I've really enjoyed his channel. So you might check out some of his other stuff and for God's sakes, uh, check out the Chris Rock special too. It's a solid comedy special. And then the end of it is just friggin' brilliant. Like it's just a brilliant, horrible takedown. I, I'm curious to watch both now. I haven't seen either, and so uh, so both are on my short list. Can I tell you, uh, no one's going to care about this, but let me tell you how I watched the Chris Rock special, because it's awful. On your um, phone? I did watch it on my phone, but it no! was even worse. Oh. No, no, no. I, okay. then, I then came home and watched it on TV. While you were was, driving? Sort of. So <laughs> so what what happened was I got, I got a blowout on the what? 134 freeway between Pasadena and Glendale coming home from a job, and there was like three feet of shoulder before there were like cars whizzing past me at like 90 miles an hour and I was positive I was going to die. Yeah, because you know in Los Angeles, if someone has a blowout, that's, you know, you're just in the way. No one's going to like slow down or stop for you. And it took over an hour for AAA to get there, but that's over an hour for me to watch the Chris Rock special while I feared for my life. On the side of the road, you just like went to your happy place, which was Netflix, on your phone and watched the Chris Rock special. And you're like, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to go out laughing. Is that that was... (laughs) More or less, yeah. Because there was nowhere for me to go. There was like, I was right by Eagle Rock, you know, the Eagle Rock Mountain or Eagle Rock Park. It's like the highway's curving and going down at an angle. Nobody gives a shit about this. So let's move on to your short end. <laughs> uh, well, Hot Rod Cameras had a uh, really cool event last week, which was a Proteus 
two times anamorphic lens event for a company called Lawa. It's actually the, the parent company is called uh, Venus Lens. And you can find them on the web at venuslens.net. But of course, Hot Ride Cameras sells all their products and we keep a ton of them in stock for demo. I would say we keep as many Venus lenses out there that they make. And they make all kinds of really unique stuff. They make these, uh, this one called the Periprobe, which is like a periscope lens that's, uh, that you've seen tons of stuff, uh, particularly online, that's been, been shot with it. But they introduced some really cool anamorphic lenses that were very inexpensive, about $1,300 a lens uh, last year. And uh, they're great. They started with a Kickstarter program, and now they're they're out there. And we keep all the different flavors of that at Hot Rod, and people come in regularly and test them out and see what they're like. But oh, just cool. recently, we got to have the uh, premiere debut of their new Proteus two times anamorphic lenses. And let me tell you, these lenses are amazing. The optical performance is probably on par with lenses that are way, way more expensive. I'd say, you know, they're the best lenses out there at triple the price. They're amazing. And they're coming in at under $5,000. And if you buy them in sets, actually, if you buy them in packs of two, you actually get a discount. There's four focal lengths available. They haven't officially announced it, but at our event, they dropped all kinds of uh, really interesting uh, bombs about uh, the future of Lawa and their lenses. Uh, the Proteus is going to get at least two more focal lengths, probably three this year. So there's a lot of stuff that's happening with that, which is really cool. And then they also just like out of their back pocket, it's like, oh, by the way, we have these compact full frame spherical zoom lenses. So they got like a 28 to 75 and a 75 to 180. They haven't said the official price, but they did say they're going to be under $5,000 and competitive with the other full frame compact zoom lenses out there that are, have similar pricing. So those were really exciting. We put them on the lens projector. I took them to three different rental houses on, on Friday. Everyone loved them. Anyone who owns like a, you know, a Sony FX series camera or any other sort of full frame camera who's been looking for a full frame compact zoom that isn't going to totally break the bank. I think they're going to have to look really closely at these because they're uh, quite awesome. Hot Rod cameras will put together a pre-order for them as soon as possible. And so anyone who's interested in them will be able to check them out. I know they're going to be at NAB. They Even though there's you won't find a scrap of information anywhere online about this. This is an exclusive to Hot Rod cameras and then by extension, the cinematography podcast. So new lenses, really, really high quality, very low cost. And for anyone out there who is actually in the process of building their kit, they are a filmmaker. They wanted anamorphic lenses, but found the price of everything else out there uh, just too damn intimidating. You're going to be able to get a set of four lenses for way under $20,000. As a matter of fact, I think that if you do their rebate, it ends up being like 14000 and change or something right now, which is oh, nice. just kind of unheard of for anything that's this quality. Anyway, I, I'm pretty blown away. I think uh, Lawa is uh, killing it right now with their stuff, and uh, they're doing it at a price point that pretty much anyone out there who's a professional in the space would be able to afford. And I think they're going to be very popular rental items. Every rental house who saw those lenses were uh, pretty blown away. And I, I can't wait till they're real and people will be able to definitely get their hands on them sooner rather than later. I know that around NAB time, which is only Geez, that I mean, not even a month now. Uh, I can't believe weeks. it. I know it's. Uh, there's going to be some lenses coming back to Hot Rod, if not by NAB. I'm sure just after NAB, and uh, we'll probably do another event, and people will be able to get, to officially play with them, and maybe there'll be a couple more focal lengths by then for people to check out. But anyway, exciting, exciting stuff. 
Oh, yeah. And the nanomorphs. I almost forgot the nanomorphs, which have been very popular. We showed two more focal lengths, which Lau just happened to have in their back pocket. Like, oh, yeah, here's here's a couple more focal lengths. So there was three lenses that launched. Now there's five. It's a very comprehensive set for anyone out there. And that won't break the bank at all. You're going to be like, you know, six, seven grand or something like that for those lenses total. And that's amazing. Anyway, so Ben, I think that just about does it for uh, our episode. Where can people find you? They want to find you. Uh, You can find me at benrock.com. Still still getting used to the fact that I own that domain. And uh, you can find all my social media links and, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Not on TikTok. Maybe one day. We'll, Maybe we'll not. See, we'll see if the government <laughs> uh, decides to shut it down. That's, so, that's uh, true. Anyway, Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. Hit us up if you need to buy gear for anything that you are doing. We are building a studio uh, for a couple of people right now, and uh, that's some exciting stuff. So uh, we, we do that, too. If you are an in-house producer, you've got a production company, and you, you need to uh, build out your space, uh, we work with a lot, of, uh, a lot of people doing that, which is fun. Excellent. Excellent. So before we go, who should we thank? Hey, let's thank Alana Cody, uh, producer extraordinaire, putting putting together uh, this episode and every episode. And let's also thank uh, Ben Katz, who is editing these episodes, making us sound halfway competent about what it is that we're, we're talking about here. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Ben. You maybe. Uh, well, you can only you? do so much with me. And let's thank Kays Alatrachi, Kays who made all the music in this episode and is working on new music for us. Let's thank him. Thank you, KaysMusicByKays.com. Yes, check out MusicByKays.com and for God's sakes, hire him for something. He's good. He does everything. Think about a thing that you might need to get someone to do. He definitely does that. And then you can hire him. Anyway. I I hear he makes a good pizza, too. (laughs) He does. He makes a hell of a pizza. All right, Ilya, well, that about wraps us up. You want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.